We'll take your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark and chapter 9. Mark 9, and we're going to read from verse number 1 all the way to verse number 13, just for context's sake. Beginning with verse, verse 1, it says this, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did, know, did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Well, again, just to kind of refresh our memories of the context of the gospel, uh, Mark is setting and writing down the preaching and teaching of Peter, the disciple, the apostle, the friend and the follower of Jesus. Uh, Mark is writing his gospel for the benefit of Roman Christians, Latin-speaking Christians in Rome. Uh, Legend has it. The story has that uh, Mark was asked by those believers if he would record all the things that Jesus was saying, and sorry, all the things Peter was saying and teaching about Jesus, write them all down in a gospel and give it to them that they might have a better understanding of all the things about Jesus of Nazareth. And Mark does exactly that. He takes the things that Peter taught and preached and records them and gives it to the church as the gospel It is, as history would record, the first of the four Gospels ever written. Uh, Most scholars would take that Mark was a source book for both Matthew and Luke, and John wrote from a different perspective altogether. Mark writes to emphasize that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant of the Lord, the one that was promised back in Isaiah 40 through 55. Mark also writes to emphasize the shape of discipleship, which must follow the pattern of the rejected and executed Messiah. Mark also writes with a specific purpose to comfort and challenge Christians about their witness for Jesus Christ. 
So he's writing them, and they're in Rome, and they get this gospel, and the gospel account that he gives them is to encourage them and challenge them to how they're living as disciples of Jesus and to comfort them about the things that they're facing. It wasn't long after this that Nero began his persecution, and many of the disciples and the early Christians were martyred and killed in Rome. And so Mark writes this. It's also very interesting if you read Peter's epistles, which were written right before Nero's execution. So the same time, roughly, that Peter's writing his letters, Mark is putting into writing all the things that Peter preached and taught as he went around as one of the apostles. Well, in order to get a handle on this passage, we kind of need to notice the train of thought that Mark lays out in the whole text. So six days before the events of the transfiguration, uh, Mark 8 unfolds and Jesus' identity is considered. Jesus' suffering and his death is clearly and plainly taught by Jesus to the apostles and the uh, disciples. Sorry, And the disciples are called in the latter part of the chapter 8 of Mark to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. And that was radically different, new understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus for all of them. It's so different that before even got there, Peter rejects and pushes back on, on Jesus' statement about his own suffering and death. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He tells him off. But Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter in front of all the other disciples and then explains what discipleship is all about. Then in 9 and verse 1, Jesus promised the group standing there that some of them would not die until they had seen the kingdom of God as it appears, having come in glory. Okay, so then they go up the top of the mountain in verse 2 and so on, and they see there Jesus transformed, and the inner reality of his divine and humanity joined together, the God-man, that inner reality of who he is, is allowed to shine forth. And we talked about last week about how the glories of Jesus, when he left his Father's side, are like a coat. He took off those outer visible displays of his glory. He laid them aside. He came to earth, born of a virgin. He was the God-man. And in that moment, up on the mountain, it's in a sense like Jesus the God-man puts back on those glorious beauties and the disciples are able to see all the glory of Jesus as he will be when he comes back in power and glory. I said to you last week about modern art, about what Jesus looks like. It's, It's one thing massively wrong. Most modern artists portray Jesus as an ordinary looking man. The moment that Jesus was went back up to his father in glory, he was transformed. He was changed back into that glorious person. He is always going to be a man, but he's also always going to be the God-man. Divine nature and human nature permanently joined together. And so when they saw him on the mountain, they saw him the way we will see him. His face will be radiating and glowing. His clothing will be shining brightly. It won't be so terrifying that we'll run away from him, but it will still instill in us a great fear and a great awe at who Jesus is. So they're up on the mountain. They see that uh, Peter does this. Peter's always opening his mouth and saying something that kind of he's foot and mouth disease. I like Peter because I can relate to him. I'm always doing the same thing. Open my mouth and speak too quick. Well, Peter does the same thing, offers to build three tents, and then all of a sudden a cloud overshadows all of them, and a voice speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And uh, the 
seen passes, they're alone with Jesus, and they begin to work their way back down the mountain again to the valley below where the rest of the disciples, there's only three disciples and Jesus. And as they're joining them, Jesus, in the, the languages, he strictly commanded them to say nothing about this until after he had risen from the dead. And our text says they, excuse me, seized upon that statement. The idea is that they kept it in mind. It wasn't that they just kind of grabbed it and they're talking about it. It's the idea that they kept the matter in mind and didn't tell anybody else about it until after the resurrection. But as they're walking down, and, and the way that uh, first century rabbis and disciples moved, the rabbi would walk out in front, the disciples would follow behind, maybe three or four paces behind, and they're talking to each other about this rising from the dead. What does that mean? And they interrupt Jesus, and in clear disciple-to-rabbi fashion, they ask him a question. Because as they're talking, they're suddenly remembering texts in the Old Testament, and the scribes teaching them that Elijah must come before the Messiah will come. And they ask him, what about this Elijah coming? And Jesus responds by turning their question regarding a future event into a statement of present-tense reality. Uh, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And then Jesus, in typical rabbinic fashion, he takes another text that he sees as related to the first one, and he introduces it back into their discussion. How then does it speak about, or written about, the Son of Man and his suffering and being treated with contempt and so on? And then he returns to the first subject and says, in fact, that Elijah has come, and he talks about his demise, stating it as a past tense, completed action as a result of cruel treatment. And you remember about maybe three or four months ago, we looked at the book of Mark again in chapter 6, and Peter, and not Peter, Herod and John, and how John was killed by Herod. And we saw the cruelness of that. We also saw the similarities between John the Baptist's death and Jesus' future death. And Jesus keeps returning to this theme as the book progresses and lining up John the Baptist's death and his own death. And that's really important to keep that in mind. So then, how are we to understand this text? What are we to make of it? Uh, I was listening to one of my favorite preachers this week. I listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones, as some of you know. Uh, now dead Welsh revival preacher, uh, very conservative, very godly man. And he was describing, he's preaching through the book of Romans. And you've got to love a guy who can take 336 sermons to go through one book of the Bible. He spent an average of 27 sermons per chapter. So all of you who complain about me taking 12 sermons to go through 1 Corinthians 1, think of 27. There you go. Six months per chapter, he preached through the book of Romans. And it's rich stuff. But he made a really interesting comment. He said, Scripture is the truth of the gospel, and it's condensed down into short books. It's not incomplete. The Scripture is complete. It's not that we add to it, but what we have to do is take all those headings, those lines of statement about the gospel, and unpack and expound them and expand them out. So he says when you preach through Romans, you preach through Romans, and you keep 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, all the other books in mind, and you feed them into, and you can take one word, like he took the word therefore in Romans 12 verse 1 and preached a great long hour-long sermon. It was great stuff. You're all glad I don't do the same thing. I know, I get that. That's all right. But what you can do is, in a passage like this, where there's so much condensed into the passage, it's often difficult to understand what Mark's point is. He's writing a letter. He's writing to people just like us, believers in Jesus. And the letter of Mark is written just as surely as to us as it was written to the first century Roman believers who were reading it for the very first time. So how do we understand this? 
And the only way we can understand it is to kind of unpack it and weave into other scriptures that speak to it and explain it and expound it. There's a whole lot of theological topics in this passage. There's the great day of the Lord is hinted at. There's Elijah and John the Baptist and the relationship between those two. That's hinted at. There's the confirmation of Jesus Sorry, Jesus' confirmation of Scripture and interpreting Old Testament texts and weaving them together to show you how his death and his resurrection and so on will occur. And so what we're going to do is, if you have that little paper thing in the, on the seat there, wherever it went on the seat, there's a note there, you'll see a whole lot of verses written down. I don't remember how many there is, but I think that's probably the most verses I've ever put into one sermon. We're not going to look at every one. I'm just going to refer to them probably by reference. If you want, you can take a pen and check out the ones you want later on. But we're going to put a lot of scripture in this to unpack what the meaning is. Mark is intending to communicate to his readers as he outlines a story under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He is showing us two main things. Number one, Jesus has authority to speak scripture. And the second thing is he is communicating that Jesus has authority to confirm and interpret scripture because... He is, as we know, its author and its subject. Jesus confirmed and interpreted the scriptures concerning Elijah and himself and both of their deaths. deaths. And you're going to see how that unpacks as we get there. The main point of all this is the words that come out of the mouth of the Father in verse 7. Listen to him. All right, that's what we want to take away. We're going to listen to Jesus. Listen to him as he talks about suffering and death. Listen to Jesus as he makes the call in Mark 8 about discipleship and following Jesus. Listen to Jesus and know and understand all the promises of Scripture that he has made. At the end, we're going to go through a whole bunch of promises and I'm just going to run through them and savor all those things that Jesus promises us if we are believers in Christ. And the main point of this, listen to Jesus. As they're walking down, that's what the Father said. Listen to Him. Listen to what He's saying. All right, so number one, we'll go through the first point pretty quickly, and the second main point will take the balance of our time. It's quite a bit longer. The authority of Jesus to speak Scripture. I want you to notice that Jesus' authority is intrinsic to Him as the God-man. Notice the whole section, 1 to 13, begins and ends with the same, almost the same statement. He says in verse 1, Truly I say to you, And then in verse 13, what's he say? But I say to you. It's the same statement twice. Jesus is using the Old Testament prophetic formula. A man would walk out of the bush into the middle of the people of God and he would say, Thus saith the Lord. And everybody would stop and turn and listen because he had just claimed to be speaking the mouth for God. He's speaking for God. So when Jesus takes that statement and says, Truly I say to you, He's just replacing, replacing, thus saith the Lord, with, I'm saying to you. He's using a prophetic formula, and he's showing them that he has the authority intrinsically to speak Scripture. When he said it, it was absolutely guaranteed. The prophets in the Old Testament had a very simple job requirement. 100% 100 accuracy, or they got the drop-off treatment. They took them to a high cliff and just dropped them off, because that was it. If you didn't speak absolutely clear... And absolutely, sorry, authoritatively and accurately, you are claiming to say something that God had not said, and the penalty for not doing that was death. Simple situation. 
Jesus is saying, listen, I'm saying to you, I'm speaking as God to the people. Listen to him. The father says, listen to him. Second thing is this. His authority is also assigned to him or given to him from God. We know at the very end of the Gospels, Jesus gets all his disciples up on a high mountain and he's going to give them a great commission. And what's the first thing he he says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here, the Father gives him the authority. He's saying, listen to him. He speaks for me. That's, That's the implied point there. He has authority assigned to him from God. Now, if you notice in verse 7 there, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What does it remind you of? Any other scene in Scripture? You think of one? Baptism. That's right. And what does the Father say? He doesn't say, this is my beloved son. He says, you are my beloved son. He addresses that comment directly to Jesus. But here, the Father's actually speaking to the disciples. He's saying, this one here, the second person or third person, is my beloved son. You're to listen to him. And he's showing them that Jesus has authority from the Father to speak on his behalf. Notice thirdly, Jesus' authority is superior to that of Moses and Elijah. They had spoken for God. Moses wrote the first five books, the Bible, the law. It was the great Old Testament of the Jews. And they had all of God speaking there. Moses went up on a mountain. And God spoke to him. He came down the mountain and spoke to the people. Went back up the mountain. And God wrote on the the stone tablets with his finger and gave him the word of God. Moses came back down the mountain and gave it all to the people. Moses was highly active for most of his life in speaking for God. And now Moses and Elijah are appearing side by side with Jesus. And they're discussing back and forth. Luke tells us they were discussing the events of his departure. In other words, his finishing of his work in Jerusalem, which was just about to happen a couple chapters later. Moses is there. And so Peter, in this comment about making three tents for them, he's kind of lining them up all on the same level. And the father says, no, no, no. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. And he identifies him as a superior authority. Moses only could speak for God. Jesus speaks as God. It's greatly different and greatly more important. By the way, that doesn't mean that we can take Moses' books and throw them out and Elijah, who represents all the prophets, and just throw them out and just focus on the New Testament. There are some Christians out there who will tell you we're New Testament believers. Don't bother with the Old Testament. It's not for us. Where's the New Testament? thousand times no. In fact, uh, Rick and Richard and I were all doing the setup. Well, they did the setup. I was just talking. And before the service started, we're talking about the Old Testament and um, the, the Bible that the first church used. And I said, they used the Old Testament. That was their scriptures. This, those are important for us. But in contrast or in comparison, if you like, Jesus has a superior authority than them simply because he is God. And that's it. Moving on. Jesus' authority is both intrinsic, it's assigned, and it's also uh, superior to the others. Listen, Casey Bible Church, we need to listen to Jesus and what he says because he has intrinsic authority to speak Scripture. He has an assigned authority. He has something to say to us all regarding not only his own life and his own death and his own resurrection and glory, he also has something to say to us about our life as obedient followers of Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what he says. Listen to the call. 
And beyond all that, realize this, that if you reject and push away what Jesus has to say about following Him and faith in Him and all that entails, then Jesus will also deny you and push you away and reject you when He comes to judge the nations of the earth. And we'll talk about that more at the end. Second main point is this. The authority of Jesus to confirm and interpret Scripture. Now, we talked about the different theological topics that are in there. They have the doctrine of Jesus' life and ministry and suffering and death and so on. We have the, something about the doctrine of Scripture as Jesus reads it and interprets it and applies it to the situation at hand. We also have reference to the Old Testament understanding of the great day of the Lord expanded into a clear understanding. Up until this point in time, when Jesus is there, all of the Jews of his day understood Jesus to be coming as the Messiah, not Jesus, but the Messiah, to be coming once and once only. And they saw his coming to preach good news, to proclaim good tidings, to heal the sick, and all those other things, and immediately to establish, reestablish Israel as the kingdom over which would rule over all the other kingdoms of the world. And the Messiah himself would sit on that throne. They saw that as one big thing at one time. And what Jesus is doing here is he's hinting at and pointing to the fact that there's actually two comings. He's coming now for one reason, and he's coming again to fulfill the rest of it, the setting up of his kingdom on earth. We talked about that a little bit last week. But we want to deal with Elijah because he's in there, and there's a lot about him, and it it helps us understand what Jesus is saying about the Scriptures and how they apply to himself. So here's a point to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we go through this. Just as the Scriptures were and will be fulfilled concerning Elijah, so also they will be fulfilled concerning Jesus Christ. So as the Scriptures were fulfilled by Elijah, so also about Christ. The key to seeing that is to notice how Jesus weaves the Scriptures about Elijah together with those about himself. He speaks about Elijah 12a, Jesus in 12b, And Elijah, again, in verse 13, he puts himself in the middle of those discussions. And we'll look at that as we get there. But first of all, Elijah, take your Bibles and flip back one book to the book of Matthew, chapter 17. It's the parallel account of the transfiguration, their discussion. We need to see one very important point that Matthew includes that Mark doesn't. Matthew 17 and verse 13 says this. It's the same story, and he adds this at the end. I'll let you find it. Matthew 17, verse 13 says, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Matthew includes that little important point that when he's talking about Elijah in both Mark 9 and Matthew 17, he's speaking and describing to them John the Baptist. And we'll understand how you put those together in a sec. Jesus is explaining the Old Testament texts that speak about Elijah as fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Now notice Jesus' agreement with existing Scripture. In verse 12, he says, Elijah does first come. So he is agreeing with what the scribes are saying. He's agreeing with the prophecy of Malachi. Uh, Take your Bibles again, flip back two books this time, to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament And we're going to read the last couple verses of the Old Testament. It's a promise. I think it's amazing. You think about the story of Scripture that God gets all the way to the end of the Old Testament. He makes a promise about John the Baptist or Elijah. There's 400 years of silence. And what's the first thing we hear about in the New Testament? Chronologically, 
Zechariah goes to the temple and the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. And he's going to do the thing that I promised all the way back in Malachi 400 years ago. But these are the verses in Malachi chapter 4. And uh, we'll read verses 4, 5, and 6 for context. Malachi says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And the Old Testament ends right there. So from that text... Jesus is saying here, yes, Elijah does indeed come first. And so he agrees with and confirms the Old Testament texts. Notice what Old Testament says, Elijah. read that already. God is going to send Elijah to them, to Israel and the Jews. Notice also, if your memory goes well, book of John, chapter 1. It takes a great section in the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and all those things. And then in verse 6, you know what it says? There was a man... Sent from God, his name was John. And it directly answers the prophecy of Malachi. I'm going to send a prophet, a forerunner, ahead of my Messiah. John verse 1 verse 6 talks about John the Baptist fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. Notice that John the Baptist preaches repentance from sin. And in a sense, he is restoring those old things. He's bringing the hearts of the children back to their earthly fathers. And he's also bringing the hearts of all the people back to God in faith and repentance. Notice Jesus' statement that scripture has been fulfilled in verses 12 and 13. But I say to you, That's a declaration of Scripture. Elijah has indeed come. He's now stating it as a past tense completed thing. He's saying it's it's happened. It's already been finished. All right. Jesus adds the current history that they all knew. They did to Elijah whatever they wished. Now, remember Mark 6, 14 through 29, the whole story. Uh, Herod hears about Jesus and all the things he's doing. He He arrested John, sorry, earlier. Sorry, back that up. He arrested John first and put him in prison because he was preaching against Herod and Herodias' illegal, unscriptural marriage. John's in prison. Herod likes the guy, keeps going down the basement, in the prison, hearing him talk. They discuss back and forth. And, and John finishes his days testifying and witnessing to Herod of his sin. End of the day, they have a big party for someone's birthday. Uh, Herodias' daughter does a very interesting dance, wins over the hearts of all the men in the room, and they ask her, they say, you can have anything you want, and she says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter, and Herod's stuck, because now you've got everybody in the room looking at him, because he's made a promise, and he has to keep it, and so they take John the Baptist, and they cut off his head and kill him, and they bring the head to Herod, and so on. Jesus is saying, he's summing up that whole scene. They did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, here's the fly in the ointment or the burr under the saddle, the bit of the problem that comes up when you look at all these texts together. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, the crowds all come out to where John the Baptist is baptizing and they say, are you Elijah the prophet? What does he say? You remember? Anybody remember? He says, I am not Elijah the prophet. And you go, wait a minute, that's a problem because Jesus is saying that he is. You say, how do you understand that? Because it seems like they're contradictory, but here's how we understand it. 
the best way to see it is that John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He is a metaphorical picture of Elijah coming. Something else here you need to memorize. Remember, sorry. The best way to understand it is that he is a type or a metaphor. In G- when Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He's not talking nonsense. He's not denying or disagreeing with John. He's stating a metaphorical truth. This is like that is the idea. He just says, John the Baptist is Elijah. Zechariah says in Luke 1 and verse 17 that John will go forth as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will act as if he has Elijah's spirit and power. Well, he will have the spirit of God, which Elijah had. So it doesn't mean that Elijah was reincarnated or anything like that. It means that John was a type or a metaphor of Elijah. Something else to think about here. Um, in a day to come, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that Elijah will come again. It doesn't use his name exactly, but the promise that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord, which will be completed in the book of Revelation when God comes in power and judgment, we see there's two witnesses, and I think it's Revelation 11 talks about it. Two witnesses show up, they're on the earth, they preach, they teach. If anybody comes against them, I believe fire comes out of their mouth and kills them and all of that. And the end of those days, they will be killed. And then what will happen is three days later after they rise again, they're going to be caught up to heaven again. Who are those two men? Well, most scholars, and I kind of agree with them, not that I'm a scholar, but they would say that two men in the Old Testament have never suffered death. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. He took up to heaven. Elijah walked with God, preached for God, ministered for God, and then he was caught up to heaven in chariots of fire. Two men who haven't suffered death. What does the Bible tell us? Every single man is born, wants to die, then the judgment. Okay, so then these two in Revelation make sense that Elijah will come then physically and minister, and then he'll be killed, and so on. It fits the prophecy, but what it does is it actually takes the day of the Lord, as in the Messiah coming to set us free from sin, and the day of the Lord when God comes to judge his people, it splits them apart, but it puts Elijah in both spots. Does that make sense? If you don't get it, don't worry about it. It's not that important. It's just it's an interesting point of scripture to try and understand how these texts work together. Jesus is not denying Scripture. He's in fact confirming and interpreting those texts and putting them together to show something very important. You say, what is that? The point of all this is to see how Jesus is lining up his death with Elijah, or John the Baptist's death and showing how they're parallel. When we did John 6, way back, I gave you a long list of all the parallels between John the Baptist's life and death and Jesus' life and death, and they line up amazingly, point after point. But Jesus is come, and the reason why this day of the Lord thing is so hard is it's even in Jesus' own words. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus gets in the synagogue, he's sitting there, they give him a scroll to read, he stands up, he opens a scroll, and he reads the scroll, and it's, it's Isaiah 61, and he says things like this. That he has come, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, has anointed him to preach good news, to heal the sick, to bind up brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right mid-sentence of Isaiah's prophecy, he stops, rolls back up the scroll, and hands it back to the attendant. And then he sits down, and they're all looking at him like, 
you left the thing unfinished. And Jesus says, today I tell you, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one that that text spoke about. I have come and I'm preaching good news. I'm healing the sick and so on. Read through the Gospels. What do you find? He's healing sick. He's raising the dead. He's cleansing lepers. He's cleansing uh, demons out of demon-possessed people and so on. All of that to show that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. But he stops right before the statement about coming in the day of the Lord in judgment and so on. So, Jesus the Messiah came the first time to rescue and redeem man from the wrath of God which is to come. Jesus the Messiah, the conquering king and judge, will return to gather the nations and judge them. He'll divide the sheep from the goats, the believer from the unbeliever. And so... The concerning the prophecies about Elijah coming before Messiah does, Jesus says that he has come. And in the person of John the Baptist, who is a type of Elijah, he has indeed come. But he's also coming again before the great day of the Lord in the end times. Having said all of that, here's a significant thing in all of this. Okay, There is a point to this, I promise. Come and listen to Jesus confirming and interpreting Scripture. He weaves the two references to Elijah, a question about himself in the middle. Number one, he confirms the scribe's statement from Elijah that he will come in 9 verse 12. He then asks about the Son of Man's own suffering and treatment with contempt in 9 verse 12, the second part. And then he uses the prophetic formula, I say unto you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him in the last part of 9 verse 13. So he's putting a reference to himself right in the middle of his discussion about Elijah. Why does he do that? Jesus is using John as a forerunner, a type of Christ, not only in his preaching and baptizing, John's, but also in the way and the manner of his death. I keep saying that because I want to get that across to us. Jesus sees his own death as following in the manner of John and the Baptist's death. He'll die like John did at the hands of wicked men who would do whatever they like to him. John the Baptist's death was a foreshadow of Jesus' coming death. Okay? So the point to remember, like I said at the beginning of this message, the point to remember is this. Just as the scripture were fulfilled concerning Elijah, so also they will be fulfilled concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Messiah. The key to seeing it is how he puts the scriptures together. So just as they were fulfilled about John, they'll also be fulfilled about Jesus. The Son of Man, like he said, will suffer many things. Look at Mark 15 and 16. Look at Matthew 26 and 27. Look at Luke and so on. You'll see all the things that Jesus suffered. The Son of Man will be treated with contempt. And we saw that. The Son of Man will be rejected and killed. If you go back to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and they describe in great and vivid detail the sufferings, the rejection, the death of Jesus. Some of the details described in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, the, they weren't even invented yet. Like crucifixion didn't come around until after those texts were actually written. And yet the Bible describes in incredible detail the crucifixion of Jesus. So everything Jesus says about himself, he's talking about scriptures that have already promised it and how it's going to be fulfilled. The Son of Man will return in power and glory. And Jesus himself gives us that prediction. John 14, 1 through 6. Um, let's read it together. John 14, take your Bibles and flip over there. John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus says to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's promising us this in black and white. He's gone away. He's going to come back. If all those promises about Jesus were fulfilled and kept in the first century when he suffered and died and rose again, this promise will also be fulfilled. Just as surely as all the promises and predictions about Elijah and John the Baptist were fulfilled back then, then so also will this one and so also will be all those other promises that Jesus makes to us about our life as disciples. So here's the point of all this. Come and listen to Jesus. It's all about Him. Not about us. It's about Him. Come and listen to Jesus. He has intrinsic authority as God Himself to speak Scripture. Come and listen to Jesus. He, has, he is the full revelation of God in the flesh to all of mankind. Come and listen to Him. Come and listen to Him as He explains and expounds the Father to us in John chapter 1 and verse 14. He came to exegete the Father to us. It means to unfold and explain all the things about the Father that we need to see and hear and know. He gave them to us. Listen to Jesus. Come and listen to Jesus as He confirms the promises of the Scripture. Come and listen to Him as He interprets the promises of the Scripture about Himself. Come and listen to Jesus as He calls us to follow Him, to take up our cross and deny ourselves and suffer for Him. Come and listen to Jesus. Why? Because if He promises that we will be glorified with Him, then just as surely, absolutely surely, as the promises about Elijah fulfilled in John the Baptist, the promise about Elijah being in glory, they saw Him up on the mountain. If that promise is fulfilled, then the soul of the ones to us about being glorified with Him at the end of the age. We saw it last week in Romans 8. The mention about our being glorified in Christ. If all those promises are going to be fulfilled, what else does Jesus say? I want to give you some. These are promises for us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, verse 49, He promised us that we would be clothed with power from on high. We would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a promise that Jesus made. If all the Old Testament promises about His life and His suffering and death were fulfilled in the first century, then you can take it to the bank, if you like, and that promise will be fulfilled. He will give us the Holy Spirit. James 1 and verse 12, He promised us a crown of life to those who persevere under trial. Some of you are going through difficult trials. Some of you are going to go through trials specifically related to your faith in Christ. And the promise of Scripture is that we will receive a crown of life from the Lord Jesus if we persevere. If those promises were kept and fulfilled, so will these ones be. He promises us that we who love Him will be heirs of the kingdom. In James 2 and 5, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 1, He promised us life in Christ Jesus. You'll have it. If we trust it, what is faith? Faith simply is this. It's trusting someone to keep their promise. So if Jesus makes these promises to us and we trust Him to keep that promise, then you know what? When He promises us, you'll have a crown of life, He'll keep it. When He promises us we'll have eternal life in 1 John 2.25, 
He'll keep that promise. We will have eternal life. If He promises us in 1 Corinthians 15, 48-57, He promised that we will be included in the resurrection at the end of the age. In 1 John 1 and 9, He promised us that we will have forgiveness of sin if we confess it to Him. He's faithful and just to keep His promises. The whole point of this, listen to Jesus. The whole point of seeing all those prophecies about Elijah and Jesus, all of them fulfilled, is to know that the words of Jesus are absolutely sure and amen. The Bible says all the promises of, uh, of God are yea and amen in Christ. So he's the keeper of all promises. He promised us in Matthew 28 and verse 20 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what you go through in this life, no matter what you go through in suffering for your faith, and there are people in this world who are suffering horrendous things directly because of their faith in Jesus Christ, whatever you go through, know that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And that includes all the physical pains and ailments that we all go through as part of regular life. He's there with us. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never let go of you. He promised that and He will keep His promises. In Romans 5, He has promised that we will have peace with God. He has promised us that we will have access into this grace in which we stand. We have access directly into the presence of the Father. We have grace for everything that we need to do. Everything God gives you to do, every step that God calls you to take, no matter how difficult or how painful or how long it will be, He promises you will have access into my grace to take that step and follow me. Whatever it might be. He promised us in the same passage that we will rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In John 16, verses 20 to 24, He promised us that we will have a joy that will never be taken away from us. You ever have those joys in little things, you know? You buy a new car, you get a bit of joy out of that, and then someone comes, you come out of the shopping center, and someone sideswiped the, the side of your new car, and it's just crumpled it from one end to the other. And that joy just goes, it's gone. <laughs> you know? There's a joy that we have in God that will never fade. I keep saying it, I'll say it again, the best is yet to come. This is just a foretaste Sitting together like this, around this Lord's table, remembering Him, worshiping Him, thinking about Him, talking about Him. It's just a foretaste that one day this will all give way and we will see Jesus as He is and the joy that we have now will never fade for all of eternity. Come and listen to Jesus. He has promised us all these things. He has already kept many of His promises. And we know that Jesus will keep all His promises. But there's something else. There's another side to this that we need to look at. Come and listen to Jesus and know this. That if you reject His call to trust Him and walk with Him, He also promises you that you'll be separated from the sheep, you'll be separated from God, and you'll be put into a place called hell. And here's the part that will probably stagger your mind to think about this. But when you stand there on that day and God says, sheep to my right and goats to my left, believer over here, I'm looking forward to that day when I feel His hand on my head and Him pulling at me under His right arm, right here beside me, Nels. 
and Karen and so on, others. If you reject the call to follow Christ, He will look at you and say, I don't know you. That promise is just as sure as His promise to keep and save all those who trust in Him. Faith, like I said, is simply trusting Jesus to keep His promises. So my question to you this morning is this. Are you trusting Him to keep the promises? He made it absolutely clear. All these scriptures have been fulfilled. The Son of Man is going to come and suffer and die. The call that I'm placing, that He's placing on our lives, can be absolutely trusted and followed without hesitation. It's a call from Him. What will you do with it? I can stand up here all day long and thunder away and patch away and pound away till my voice runs out and I run out of things to say. But at the end of the day, you... Before the living God must make a decision. You will either trust Him to keep those promises or not. But know for surety that God will keep His one promise to Himself, to His law, in regards to His holiness. He will separate Himself from those that reject Him and refuse to trust. That's not my words, that's the words of Scripture. What will you do with Jesus Christ this morning? Let's take a moment. We're going to stand and we're going to give thanks. We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing one more song. The song we're going to sing is this. What grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light. He called through the night to find my distant soul. And from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in Him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow Him. What grace is mine to know His breath alive in me. Beneath His wings my wakened soul may soar. That's the joy He promised. All fear can flee, for death's dark night is overcome. My Savior lives and reigns forevermore. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow Him. As we sing those words, I'm going to pray in a minute. When we sing those words, I hope and pray that you can honestly say as you sing that this is true of me. I bow my heart, I take up my cross, and I follow Him. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we rejoice that he has authority to speak scripture. He came and he spoke everything that you gave him to speak. He came and revealed you to us. Father, we thank you for the great promises of scripture. Father, we thank you that the Old Testament promised and described in vivid detail his sufferings. And Father, we thank you that he came. And he was willing to bend the knee, in a sense, to take up his cross, to carry it all the way to a hill called Golgotha, to submit himself to your will and the hands of wicked men as they nailed him to it. And Father, to suffer there, even the suffering of forsakenness by you, And Father, the heart of man can't even begin to comprehend the pain and the agony that that was to him and to yourself. 
And Father, we give you thanks that after those hours on the cross when darkness faded and light returned, that Jesus pushed down the nails in his hands and feet, took a massive cry, and he shouted from the highest of the heavens to the depths of hell, It's finished. Father, we thank you that every promise regarding his suffering and death was completed. Father, we thank you for the great promises he made us about the Holy Spirit living in us. Father, we thank you for the promise that we have, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fact that both of you poured out your spirit on us. Father, we thank you for the joy that we have. And Father, we look forward with great anticipation to the reality that he is coming again. His feet will one day land again on this earth. And we will see Him as He is. Father, we will see Him in the same glory that the disciples saw Him on the mountain. But Father, we give thanks also for the promise that we will be glorified with Him like those two men were. Father, thank You for the reality of Your promises. Father, I plead with You that the Spirit of God would move through this room. The Father, if one single person in this room has never trusted You, that the Spirit of God would work on their hearts, awaken them to faith and faith and repentance, enable them to see, Father, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enable them, Father, to put their trust in You and trust You to keep Your promises. Father, we ask You all these things. We give You thanks again for our time in the Word. And Father, we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father, again, we give You thanks this morning for immense grace that has called us out of the darkness of sin and death. Father, we thank You for immense grace that has called us to follow You wherever You lead us. Father, give us the grace and the strength and the faith to never insert a but after that, but to follow wherever you lead, whatever the cost may be. Father, we rejoice this morning that one day we will stand with the angels and we will lift up our voices and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Father, we would, as we remember that psalm from the very beginning of our morning, we would ascribe to Him honor and glory and worship, for He indeed is is worthy. Father, we thank You again for our time together. We ask You, O God, for Your blessing as we depart. In Jesus' name, Amen.